O Lord our God, who enlightens all hearts, who have been so beautifully gracious as to reveal your Son to us, what nation is there that has God so close to it as you, O Lord, are close to us by all of your works and your deeds? Therefore look kindly upon us and fill our minds and our hearts with your knowledge. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Holy Mary, our hope seat of wisdom, pray for us. Besled Carlos Acutis, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. As always, we will have about a half hour of teaching and then a remaining half an hour of question. We always finish promptly at 8.30 to be respectful of everyone's time. As a little side note, I invoked Blessed Carlos Acutis, whose feast day it is today. He was, can- he was beatified two years ago, a beautiful soul. He converted his parents at eight years old. They were, they were non-practicing Christians, and he had the faith, and he converted them and many of his friends. I won't talk about him too much, but a great, great contemporary life. Now, we wanted to address our topic for tonight, the divine law, right? What it is and what it is not. Now, again, principally speaking, the divine law is what we know fundamentally as divine positive law and divine natural law. I'll give you a scriptural foundation. Our key scripture passage for tonight will be St. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, verse 13 through 15. 2 Thessalonians 13 through 15. Side note, St. Paul, remember, 2 Thessalonians is only three chapters. And this passage we're reading is framed within St. Paul talking about, chill out about freaking out about the end of the world. This is what the spirit of the deceiver does and does not. And it's, it's, so this passage about doctrine is framed within that. So he goes, but, right, he has that beautiful conjunction. So it's all, relax about the end of the world. Yes, there is the man of deception who will be revealed. But, right, verse 30. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, beloved brethren, by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm, And hold to the traditions you were taught by us, which you learned either by word of mouth, read divine divine positive law, or letter. Word of mouth or by letter. Hold fast to the traditions you learned for us by word of mouth or by letter. Divine law. Now we're going to start with divine positive law. Divine positive law, 
God positively declared it, right? That's what we mean by divine positive law. God has declared it as such, right? One of the great icons of divine positive is the Ten Commandments, right? The Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus Christ, so on and so forth. A scriptural creed for divine positive law. We're going to go to the Gospel of St. John. Chapter 18, verse 33 through 38. John 18, 33 through 38. You'll recognize it. Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others tell you about me? Let's pause for a moment. Now our Lord is trying to elicit conscience. Conscience is next week's topic, but you're starting it, right? Do, do you know? Or did you hear, right? Hold fast traditions taught to you by us by word of mouth or letter, right? So do you know this interior reflection? Or did other people tell you? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Right? Now he's trying to localize truth, right? Jews have their thing, we have our thing. Your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingship is not of this world. It's fascinating. He goes right back to the original question. Are you the king? Or do others tell you? My kingship's not of this world. Okay. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingship is not from the world, right? Sometimes this trade is not of the world. This is a better translation. My kingdom is not from the world. Does not have a derivative from an earthly power. It's important to make that distinction because he is king of the world. But his kingship is not from, it doesn't fit the categories of transitory human power. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Right? Reductionist. I'm putting you into a category. Jesus answered, You say, I am a king. For this I was born. And for this I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Right? Sometimes to testify to the truth. But both are the same meaning. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That's also an important trend. Some trends say anyone who hears the truth hears my voice. But again, the better trend is anyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, I bring this passage up as fundamental in understanding divine law. Divine positive law is the declaration of God to the world. Whoever is of the truth hears my voice. I have not a kingship from this world. I have an eternal kingship. I declare an eternal law. I'm going to go now to the catechism as the catechism explains this. 
Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 74, 75, and 76, right? CCC, 74, 75, 76. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth that is Christ Jesus. Christ must be proclaimed to all the nations and individuals so that this revelation may reach to the ends of the earth. Then they quote from the Second Vatican Council. God graciously arranged all the things that had once revealed for the salvation of peoples should remain in their entirety throughout the ages and be transmitted to all generations, right? Divine truth is forever. Christ the Lord, in whom the entire revelation of the Most High God is summed up, commanded the apostles to preach the gospel, which had been promised beforehand by the prophets, and which he fulfilled in his own person and promulgated with his own lips, all right? The entire revelation of the Most High God, the summation of all divine positive law, is in Jesus Christ, foretold by the prophets. I want to pause there and explain a little bit. Because here's where we get into question. Well, didn't God give all kinds of divine positive law in what's called by the Jews the Torah in the Old Testament? The, what, I forget what, 471 laws of the Jews. The importance of this, right? Why do you not have to keep kosher like the Jews do? It is because Christ fulfills and sums up all law in himself. So when Christ says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not kill. But I say to you, whoever even Look, speaks ill of his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, right? That's, most, that's the, the commandment. But I say to you, anyone who even looks at someone lust in their, has already committed adultery in their heart, right? This is the elevation of Christ to the high perfection of the law. The way we keep holy the Lord's day. When you're struck on one cheek, you turn the other as well, so on and so forth. These, these are the things that are, belong to divine positive law. Now we might say, well, why do we keep the Ten Commandments? Well, we had that passage just last Sunday in the Gospel because Christ, when the young man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know the commandments, you should, right? So Christ validates the Ten Commandments and elevates them. Right? So that's the divine positive law which we have the duty to transmit through all time. Now, the last paragraph, we actually covered this in last semester's Topics on the Church, but we'll just reiterate it. Uh, St. Paul and Second Thessalonians mentioned this, right? Everything, hold fast to the traditions handed on by us, either by word of mouth or by letter, all right? So you have here, in keeping the Lord's command, the gospel was handed on in two ways. Orally, by the apostles who handed it on by the spoken word of their preaching, by the example they gave, by the institutions they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and his work, or they had learned it in the prompting of the Holy Spirit. In writing, by those apostles and other men associated with the apostles, who under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, committed the message of salvation to writing. 
So this is, this is divine positive law. I hope that, I'm not going to iterate every aspect of divine positive law, but does that make sense? Divine positive law, God declares it. Its perfect declaration is in Christ. Right? Now we're going to get to the second aspect of divine law, divine natural law. The key here, sorry, this is a new Bible. I can't always remember how everything's broken down. Uh, here we are. Romans 1. If you're at the Mass this evening, you heard this passage at Mass. It was very providential. It was the epistle at Mass. Romans 18 through 25. Yes, 18 through 25. Now Paul begins this. Hi, welcome to the Romans. You guys are great. That's paraphrased, of course, but that's what he says, right? Your faith, which is the envy, that's beautiful. He writes to the Romans, your faith, which is the envy of all the world, he says to the Romans. Go St. Cecilia, right? She was a Roman. So he talks about how he's eager to go there and go to Rome. Why is he eagle? We start with verse 16, for the gospel is great. And then why else? Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth, right? Now notice that. Not who by their wickedness suppress the law, who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has showed it to them. He's starting to talk about natural law now. It's plain to them because God showed it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. That's natural law, right? Natural law are those eternal realities written into creation itself. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds. Sticky pages. And their senseless mind were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator." who is blessed forever. Amen. So that's what we're talking about with divine natural. Let's get back to the key passage. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Right? That's Roman 1 verse 20. That's essentially natural law. The Christian church has always understood not only is there, there really should be any authentic religious outreach, any authentic search for God 
ought to have common points because it ought to, at the very least, be able to acknowledge natural law. There is a very sensible reason why virtually all religions, all moral and ethical systems, even a religious ethical systems, have certain moral commonalities, right? They don't, like, stealing is almost universally frowned upon, right? Now, once you get into the particulars, people will structure various excuses for it, but the notion of stealing as such is almost universally condemned. The notion of murder as such is almost universally condemned. Again, once you break into the particulars, off you go to weirdness, but I mean, as a, as a basic understanding. And we would say, well, obviously there is. Everyone is able to do that, right? Divine positive law can only be accepted by faith. That's why it's our duty to preach the gospel. Divine natural law can be known by anyone who has the faculty of reason. So divine natural or divine positive law can only be accepted by faith. Divine natural law can be accepted by anyone who has the faculty of reason. This gets, and, and all are bound to it. Now again, we're getting to the particulars with conscience. I'm trying to be very clear about basic categories, right? So let's try to be basic, right? The divinity of Christ is divine positive law. I am not, I cannot create a law for civil society that says, you must believe in the divinity of Jesus. That you have to go to Mass on Sunday is divine positive law. So I can't create a law that says everyone has to go to Mass on Sunday. Does that make sense? These are divine positive laws. That if you get struck on one cheek, you should turn the other is divine law. That's not natural law. Right? Now that's different from natural law, right? We can insist that people keep the natural law. This is what fundamentally is at a lot of contemporary hot-button issues. Why does the church say things about abortion to the public sphere? Right? The church does not say that Catholic politicians should lobby for laws saying that everyone has to go to Mass on holy days. The church never says that. Right? The church never says that Catholic politicians are duty-bound to create civil laws that say um, you have to support the works of the church. We do say, Catholic politicians, and really all politicians, are duty-bound to defend life. Therefore, abortion cannot be permitted. To defend marriage as, as understood by natural law. So on and so forth. That's the fundamental reason. So when people get into this, well, why are you projecting your religion on to non No, we're not doing that. We are projecting natural law because we understand St. Paul's diagnosis is framed in religious language, but it's not fundamentally a religious argument. It says if you start to go contra nature, you're going to get all kinds of messed up stuff. And if you say, I do not have to obey the law written in my nature, and not to get into every sort of thing now, because this conversation goes all kinds of places, I'd like to save that for future courses, because we need to understand conscience, and we need to understand anthropology. Those are the next two courses. Those are very, very important. But we're starting with law. 
Now, catechism can be helpful here. Because we want to talk the last 10 minutes when we say love, right? We get it. Divine positive law, we understand that. God says it. Divine natural law, we look at it. So divine natural law can be harder because, you know, you can look at something and not know or get confused about two things. You can make a mistake. So natural law is a little less clear, but can be understood. I don't, I don't have to have God tell me that I shouldn't bludgeon my wife to death when she makes me upset. Right? I don't need God to know that. I don't need God to tell me that I shouldn't envy my neighbor and secretly steal his stuff. Okay? I do need God to tell me that there is blessing in my mourning, that I should persevere through my sorrows and take up my cross, right? I need God to tell me that. Nature doesn't. But then when we say law, natural, what is the effect of law? Right? So this is the catechism. 1950 onward. And I'm not always going to read the whole paragraph. I mean, I'm not against the whole paragraph, but I'm going to highlight it for us so we don't have to... You can read the whole paragraph if you like. All right. So beginning in the catechism... Um, actually, let's start in the preface paragraph because it's really the best one. 1949. Right. Called to beatitude, to blessedness, to happiness, but wounded by sin. Humankind stands in need of salvation from God. Divine help comes to him in Christ through the law that guides him and the grace that sustains him. The moral law is the work of divine wisdom. Its biblical meaning can be defined as fatherly instruction, God's teaching. It prescribes for men and women the ways, the rules of conduct that lead to the promised beatitude. It proscribes, right? Prescribes, do this. It proscribes, don't do this. All right. It proscribes the way of evil, which turns away from God and his love. Right? That's what I mean. Moral law is fatherly. It's trying to use an icon, right? It's trying to use the icon of dads should punish, not because they're angry, because they want what's good for you. They want order in the house and want you to do what's good. Law, all right, now this is important. Law is a rule of conduct by competent authority for the sake of the common good, okay? Law is a rule of conduct, do this or don't do that, by competent authority, right? Someone who has the right to say this, for the common good. Divine law comes to us from the ultimate of competent authority for the common good, right? No law should exist just for the benefit of one person or one group of people. It should exist for the good of all, right? Some people might be able to obey the law more easily than other people, all right? I have a vicious habit with me that makes me harder to obey the speed limit. Other people can obey it more easily, Etc. But it's still for everybody's good. Moral law presumes rational order established among creatures for their good and to serve their final end by the power, wisdom, 
and goodness of the Creator. That's a very beautiful, beautiful sentence in the Catechism. Moral law presumes the rational order. We think about, we just don't do what we want. We think about these things. Established among creatures, that's us, for their good and to serve their final end. That's something to understand about law, both divine and natural. It's to serve our final end. It can be really, right? We live in an incredibly wealthy, incredibly materially powerful society. I said, I could have had pizza or Chinese or Mexican or, right, the drop of a hat. That's just a simple. I can go home tonight and watch Amazon or Netflix or whatever. I can go on the computer and get really pissy and ornery because the whatever uh, boo Halloween cocktail napkins I arrive aren't going to get here till Monday and not on Thursday. Unbelievable. How will I sort them out? All right. Okay. We've heard this a lot. In, we, instant gratification. We, we can all have it real fast. Law can't be like that. Laws that are like that, hopefully you can see, would degrade a common good, really. If everyone can have what they want, when they want it, as quickly as possible, it gets super hard to maintain a common good pointed to a final end. If I, right, gluttony, belongs to natural law, right? Christ gives particular edges to it, all right? That I'll be, because I'm a believer, I'll be judged more clearly. But there are things in natural law. There are things that I should do and put in my body and things that I should not, and in a certain order. I can do whatever I want. I can have pizza at 5 and cheeseburgers at 8 and ice cream at 10. I can do that, right? In fact, I know full well all the vital possibilities if I should like. I've already achieved verse 1 of that. I can do it. Natural law tells me I ought not. I might not kill over dead right here today. Hope, right? But it's not ordered well towards my final. Does that make sense? I'm trying to use a simple, right? And if I, and again, we're going to get a conscience next week, but, but this is the whole point of law. If I know the law, if I'm a believer, divine positive law, if I'm a human being, divine natural law, and if I want to flourish, if I want to be all that I can be, be the most that I can be, I should want to order myself accordingly because it's for the good of my final end and the good of all of my brothers and sisters, right? The common... So we all have to try to strive to hearken to law. Now again, we're going to go through the course and talk about, because that first sentence, law is a rule of conduct established by competent authority for the sake of the common good. There are all kinds of things that happen in contemporary life that are either not by competent authority or are not for the common good. That's the fundamental flaw. One flaw we have in 
Americas, we believe very firmly in what's called legal positivism. If it's a law, it's good. If it's against the law, it's bad. And how do we know? We state it, right? Hopefully we can all have enough reflection in this point in history to say legal slavery was a bad idea. It was not right. Super legal. We might not judge past people in histories, etc., etc., but we might have enough understanding right now to say that wasn't a good idea. That was, in fact, the legalization of a moral evil. Okay, so that's an instance, right? Obviously we have today. Divine, like, legal positivism says abortion is legal, therefore it's a moral good. Perhaps not. So that's something in our American mindset we have to be a little bit careful of. Now that fits really well into divine positive law. But even if you notice how Christ refines divine positive law, you see, right? What's, What's the Magna Carta of divine positive law? The Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are super personal. Blessed are those who mourn. Like, are you mourning all the time? No, but like when you do, you have to find your happiness in it. Blessed are the meek, etc. See, it's, it doesn't say do this and this and this. It says order your life this way. Mm-hmm. Right? Now again, we'll talk about the particulars, but that's the heart of law. Divine Pazara stated. Divine natural law seen and realized by all people. It is our duty to hearken to it for our own individual flourishing. Pointing us, again, it points us towards our final end. It's not about making us happy necessarily right now. It might be, but it's not necessarily your happiness right now. Because my happiness right now would be probably Oreo cookies, okay? (laughs) It's not oriented to my right now. Is order to my final end. Okay. There are the, I'm one minute over, but I still think that's okay. Questions or comments about this or anything else we've heard? When you refer to natural law, you're talking about the laws of biogenesis, planetary motion, physics, mathematics. Mathematics, so on and so forth. Yep. That's why philosophy, philosophy belongs to natural law. Mathematics belongs to natural law. Physics belongs to natural law, etc. That is one of, that's what, when Thomas Aquinas makes his arguments for the existence of God, he's making his arguments based on natural law. You don't, you don't need a law to argue for God's existence from Revelation. Revelation says God exists. But yes, if you look at the proofs for God's existence, those are all natural law arguments. Theoretically, everyone at university is theoretically at a high level, probably not actually, studying natural law. Hopefully well. Not always, Pat. Um, given that divine natural law should be embedded into our human nature, do you think that God takes more offense at violations of divine natural law or you know, divine positive law? Well, again, Scripture would indicate clearly, I think the words of Christ, right? Do you hearken to the truth? Hey, you, stoic, legalistic Roman, do you not, right? The centurion figured it out. The guy who built the synagogue for the Jews, he figured it out. He didn't have revelation. So yeah, natural law is essentially important. Because we all all must testify, 
Faith is a gift. Faith is a supernatural gift. Yes, given to you at baptism. But even if it's not given to you at your baptism, you are duty-bound to follow natural law. And so, yes, you would be held. Also, the, the base point of natural law is much more elemental. Right? The, the, vicious, the vicious crimes that the state prosecutes, which, right, murder, which, the, right, you know, the very first murder cried out, the earth cried out for vengeance. So, so yes, we would say violations of natural law are much more grave as such. For a believer, violating divine positive law is probably more grievous because presumably the love of faith has poured this into their heart. So they're not rejecting their nature, they're rejecting their creator. Does that make sense? If we can, maybe if I can make a pause. I'm gonna, this is where a pause where we're going to talk about objective and subjective, right? Objective, the thing as it is, of its own self. The law. Thou shalt not kill. Subjective, what happens in a particular person's situation. Right? My own experience of that law. Right? So that's where I'm talking about the more grave offense. Objectively, offense against the divine law are much more grave. For a subjective believer, offenses against the divine law are more grave. That's where like objective and subjective become more important. Because you have to subjectively have faith in order to violate divine law. A person who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, risen the dead, does no evil by not going to church on Sunday. They, don't know, they have no way to know that that would be a thing to do, right? They're not bound to it. You might say they're called to it in Christ, but they don't know Christ yet, so they can't live that, right? If I, that's why, if, right, this is something I think is important for evangelization, because this happens also a lot. A lot of times we will find um, amongst our children, grandchildren, friends, neighbors, coworkers, etc., where they are violating some combination of natural law and divine law. Here's a popular one, getting married in church. Right? Marriage is natural law. Getting married in church is divine law. Right? Marriage as a sacrament is divine law. You go, right ba- you go right back to it, all right? Christ in the gospel who declares it positively. Why did Moses allow you to get a bill of divorce and dismiss your wives? Hardness of your heart. In the beginning, not so. So this is why in the church's law, uh, let us say uh, someone wants to marry uh, Joe the non-believer. Well, Joe the non-believer married his first wife, Sally the non-believer, and then that marriage ended. Well, Joe the non-believer has to go through a nullity trial. Because we believe in the reality of his marriage. Because it was nat- it's natural law. But so, now to get back to the original point. When we have encounter our fellows who are violating the law, we usually bring a religious perspective to it. They're cussing and blaspheming. Well, for most of us, that's a divine positive law response that we're having. And so we might say, well, don't talk like that. Don't blaspheme. 
Don't take the Lord's name in vain. But for them, they don't have a category for that in their mind. Now, in the moment, we might say, please don't do that out of respect for me in our office environment. But what it should teach us is, I have to find out a way to witness Christ to them. I have to bring them to a way to love Christ because this violation of the law, all right? They sleep in and they don't go to church on Sunday. What we don't need to say to them is, you've got to go to Mass. We do just find a way to say that we have to listen to faith in Christ. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? So that's where knowledge of what's divine law and what's natural law can become real helpful in pointing us to our evangelization. He has to get his dog. He's not upset about what I said. (laughs) (laughs) A helpful exercise, I think, for you might be think of a list of things that you see go around you, positive or negative. Try to identify, do I do this because it's divine law or is this natural law? See if you can see things in your life that fits this instantiation, right? Not, again, and don't see it as a way, right? Because remember, both are divine law. Divine positive law and divine natural law are divine law. But the natural law leads to one approach, and the divine law leads to another approach. Does that make sense? So you see that, I'm not giving you homework, I don't, I'm saying, come in and go over your worksheets, all right? But I'm saying, what can be a useful application? Because what we're going to talk about next time is conscience. Conscience is the faculty on how you know what's right. right? Well, isn't like what you just said to do like, look at what you do as like a list, isn't it as... You have found me out. It is an examination. (laughs) Yes, I didn't want to use that phrase, but yes, what I have asked you to do is, in effect, a more detailed examination of conscience. Yes, you get the gold star. (laughs) No, you are absolutely on the right track because you realize, and this is where conscience becomes important, and I want to give it its due time and not get ahead. Law is important because you have a competent authority, right? A fatherly wisdom that is giving a rule for the common good. We all get right. We say nice things like the family of God or the family of humanity. My God, how are we all going to get along? Right? Like this. Right? That's ordered towards your final end. Right? Every Christian wants what every human being should want to die well to die in the grace of God, to die with a life, to use a scriptural term, full of good works. To die of a life full of faith in good works is more the better. So we want to have that high bar. Okay, I'm getting sermonistic, and this is not a time for sermons necessarily. Any other questions or comments? Yes, King. Mm-hmm. and uphold natural law, but doesn't, um, doesn't seem to have that seed of faith that it takes to follow the, uh, the other kind. What can one do, I mean, in addition to praying for that person, but what can one do to 
All right, yes. Yeah, so someone, and there are such people out there who are virtuous people, we might say. They live good lives and follow natural law fairly well. But don't have faith. Now, number one, those are the... It's important to pray for everyone. Please don't misunderstand this. But like those are the most important because those are the closest ones to be able to receive the light of faith. The second thing is, in my experience, those are the people for whom the lives of the saints are most attractive because they recognize virtue. And then the third thing that I think that we can do is if you can find a way to find, and this is a little winsome, takes cleverness and knowledge of a person. What are the little Bible quotes that they don't know are Bible quotes, right? Because in my experience, virtuous non-believers love proverbs and wise sayings and things like this, right? Um, literature can be helpful in this regard, but I think, because you don't have time to become a master of all books, etc. Find scripture passages. Ask God the Holy Spirit to show you scripture passages, especially ones that are not always demonstrably scripture passages. Because if someone can all of a sudden really hearken to a Bible passage, once they do that, the opportunity to just say, you know what, you need to love Jesus, gets so much wider. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Yes, light of grace of faith. Again, saints are plus minus. They rally to virtue, but they might sense you're trying to religify them and reject that. I mean, so that, that can depend. That cuts two ways. But um, those Bible passages that might just speak to their heart that are very like Proverbs, etc. And if they start to accept them, that's a great opportunity to just say the gospel to them. Well, Patrick Madrid has talked about this in a really beautiful way. Uh, we, we'll get into the, what I mean when I say state the gospel to them in later moments. But when you, to the best of your knowledge, are doing apostolate with someone, especially a virtuous person, who's just gen- and we all know, we know people like this, we're good people. They do a lot of good. And they live a very good, orderly life. But they don't have faith. Um, if we can have that moment, we open that little space for those Bible quotes and prayers, and we just say... Christ is your God. That seed has immense effect. And the power of conversion is really powerful. Yes? I'm not sure. In one of St. Paul's letters, he's talking to the group that says, you're neither hot nor cold. That's the book of Revelation you're thinking of, but yes. Revelation. Okay, so what exactly does that mean? Well, in that instance, Christ is speaking to the churches. So he's talking to believers. You're neither hot nor cold, but your works are lukewarm. Therefore, I vomit you out of my mouth. All right. That's where Christ is talking about living zealous for the life of perfection. If you are a believer, you're called to be holy, right? To all the believers in Rome, called to be holy. He doesn't say, to all the pagans called to be holy. To all of the Stoics called, no. That's what Christ is talking about. You are a believer, right? You're the one who has to, you know... Stay married to your wife forever and turn your cheek and pray for those who curse you and bless those who talk bad about you. So that's what he means. But you don't do that. So you're lukewarm, right? Christ, that's Christ God, right? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even the pagans do that, right? That's natural law. Be nice to people who are nice to you. Isn't that, isn't that we're preaching to 
That's a phrase preaching to the choir. I'm just talking to a bunch of people who believe this already, and they all nod and say, oh, yes, Father. All right. But that's, that's lukewarm is, I don't, you know. So believers who just live the natural law are lukewarm. Uh, again, I, I would say, I mean, people who believe in the divine law are lukewarm. Yeah. Because in my experience, when you get into the divine law, there's a whole lot of it they're saying, that's not for me. Because again, we could get into a wider arc here, because there's, if you say, right, if you stand up in the creed and say, I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so on and so forth then you are duty-bound to live that to, to the law that Christ enunciates, right? But if you sit on church on Sunday and say that, and then you walk out and... Yes, right? Christians who say they believe in the divine law, but then live, don't even live the divine law, or even the natural law very well, are in a... That's difficult. And that happens. Yes, absolutely it does. And it stands out starkly because virtuous people who don't believe shine brighter than because unvirtuous people who do believe, right? Because they say, wait a minute, this is out of joint here, right? That's St. Paul talking to the Corinthians. Like, you think I'm right because I'm heavy with you? I'm not. You've got a guy who's sleeping with his stepmother. Not even the pagans do that. Get, what are you doing, right? Or Christ, Right? Only good to those who are good to you. What, what credit is that to you? Everybody does that. So yeah, it has to be a higher law, right? That's right. Narrow the gate and constricted the path that leads to life. It's hard. Got to work at it. Anything else? All right. An announcement from Elizabeth, our director of Apostolic Mission.